We've all heard of a good Samaritan, haven't we? Um, and when Jesus told about the good Samaritan, you know, it's a story which has since become so well known that whenever a stranger does a good deed for anybody and rescues them out of some kind of dire predicament, uh, we nearly always refer to them as a good Samaritan. And so we tend to think of the Samaritans as the good guys who we haven't met yet. That, that's sort of how society would picture a good Samaritan. But really, that, that completely misunderstands the story that Jesus told. The Jews hated the Samaritans. And hate's a very strong word, uh, but that's exactly it. They hated the Samaritans. Uh, but that's all right, because the Samaritans hated the Jews right back. Now, the feelings were quite mutual between them and there was a whole history of hatred that had been there. See, hundreds of years earlier, Israel had been divided into two kingdoms. Um, There was the tribes of Judah and Benjamin in the south and the other ten tribes of Israel in the north. Anyway, the northern kingdom was coaxed into idolatry and they intermarried with other races. At least that's how, the, that's how the southern kingdom viewed it. The southern kingdom had actually done a bit of that themselves, but they sort of looked upon the northern kingdom as, as you know, oh, those baddies that have done that. Um, but out of all of the northern kingdom, it was the region of Samaria, the Samaritans, that was seen as the particularly impure and idolatrous people. And they had arguments with the Jews over where they were allowed to worship and whether they build their own temple or whatever and they had wars with Israel and whatnot. But, but they were still part of Israel. They were still actually God's chosen people. God had not turned his back on them and nor had they completely forgotten about God. See, it wasn't only the Jews who were waiting for a Messiah, the Samaritans were waiting for, for the Messiah as well. If you want to know more about that, you can turn to, to the Gospel of John and read about when Jesus met with a Samaritan woman in the well, at the well. And in their discussion, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he's going to tell us all things. And Jesus basically says, ta-da, it's me. I'm the one you're talking about. So they were waiting for the Christ, just as Israel were, and we're told that when Philip went into Samaria, that's exactly what he preached. And that was exactly what they responded to. He proclaimed that Jesus was the Christ. And God backed it up with significant, miraculous signs and the Samaritans believed. But anyway, the Jews and the Samaritans did not get on at all. And to talk about a good Samaritan, well, that that was just a total nonsense to them. That would be like telling the Anzacs the story of the good Turk or the good German, where the Allies left one of their own on the side of the road to die because they didn't want to stain their uniforms, but along wanders a Turk or a German and, and he goes out of his way and he goes to great personal expense to see that his enemy is safe and sound and, and well and looked after. And so the point of the story is, well, who was actually the neighbour to that person that was injured? Well, it wasn't one of the allies, it was the German or the Turk. It would be like telling the Israelis the story of the good Palestinian. Or it would be like going to Brisbane on State of Origin night and telling the story of the good New South Welshman. It, it was just a nonsense, an anathema to them. It wasn't the fact that he was a stranger, it was the fact that the Sumerians and the Jews had it in for one another on racial, political and religious grounds. They hated each other. 
And so when Jesus told his parable about this good Samaritan and how he was a better neighbour than the rest of the religious Jews, well, that was really something. Yeah, um, even the disciples, um, James and John, when they went into a Samaritan village with Jesus and that village didn't welcome Jesus, they said, Lord, you want us to call fire down from heaven to consume them? You know, it was sort of like, you, you can get a picture, can't you, of what, how these guys felt about the Samaritans. <laughs> can we burn them up? <laughs> That'll be good. And Jesus goes, no! You know, and he gets up them. You know, you've completely misunderstood it. Um, but just before Jesus ascended into heaven, he said to his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which was the religious capital, in Judea, which was the country areas of, of Israel, and Samaria, to the Samaritans, and to the end of the earth. That's us. And today's reading is the beginning of that mission into Samaria. And I find it quite interesting that, that it's not actually the apostles who led the mission. It was the second generation Christians who led the mission. The apostles later on verified it and they got on board with it, but only after they'd seen that it was all going quite well already. The the Samaritans were believing and being baptised and and so on on their way home, the apostles began to preach the gospel in many Samaritan villages. But they didn't do that at the start. It, it It wasn't the leaders, it was the others. And I guess that's the, the same thing we find in a lot of new church movements, you know. When God starts to move in a congregation, most people like to tend to think that they need to look at the leader. No, you don't need to look at the leader. You need to be listening to God and being open to what God is going to do with you and where God is going to direct you into ministry. It's not all about the leader. It's about how God, the Holy Spirit, moves each and every one of us. So it was Philip a Hellenist. We talked about Hellenists last week. Can anyone remember what a Hellenist is? Pop quiz. Did anyone listen last week? What is a Hellenist? A Greek-speaking Jew. Okay? So a Hellenist couldn't speak Hebrew. They spoke in Greek because they'd been away and they'd, and they'd come back to Jerusalem. And when they're away, nobody understands Hebrew, so they'd learnt Greek and didn't know Hebrew. But here he was somebody who couldn't speak Hebrew. He he probably wasn't so caught up in this whole Hebrew purity thing and so maybe he wasn't quite so against the Samaritans and he was the first one to go out and preach the gospel to these Samaritans. You see, when the Christians began to be persecuted, they had to get out of Jerusalem and flee for their lives. We're told that it was only the apostles who stayed behind in Jerusalem. We're not told why, but we're told that only the apostles stayed behind. Everyone else had to uproot their lives and and uproot their families and head out for a new beginning in in a place. They'd have to leave their homes behind because they're getting persecuted, they're getting thrown in jail, they're being killed for their faith. And they scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And you know what they did wherever they went? They shared the gospel. They told people about Jesus. Persecution very often has that effect. When Christians are forced to leave their homes and to uproot their lives and make a new beginning, wherever they go, the gospel spreads. 
And if you love Jesus enough that rather than deny him, rather than giving up on Jesus, that you would uproot your whole life and move, then you'll love Jesus enough that that you'll start telling people about Jesus. And that's what they did wherever they went. And when they preached Christ, the Samaritans responded. And when the news of this reached the apostles in Jerusalem, well, this they had to see, some Samaritans turning to Jesus. So they said along Peter and John. Now you realise this is the same John who had said to Jesus, can we nuke them? You know, this is the same John that's now going to the Samaritans. Uh, he'd, he'd already seen for himself what it was like when the Samaritans rejected Jesus, but now he's hearing that they're receiving Jesus and believing in Jesus and being baptised. And when they got there, these two apostles laid their hands on them because the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them and when they laid their hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit. You know, a lot of people ask me, Michael, when, when does God give his Holy Spirit? Am I filled with the Holy Spirit? When, 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 when does it happen? And, you, and I actually find myself asking that sometimes. And, and I search the scriptures. What does God say about the Holy Spirit? When does the Holy Spirit come? Because we like neat answers, don't we? And we like neat processes. We, we like to have a set pattern. We talked about patterns before. We like to have a set pattern, a, a formula of cause and effect. If I do this, then I will get that. Uh, and if I do these things, then God will do this. And if I satisfy these requirements, then God will send his Holy Spirit. But the problem is God doesn't work like that. And what we're going to find as we continue through this, this book of Acts is there is no set pattern to when God gives his Holy Spirit. Sometimes the Holy Spirit comes through the ministry of the apostles, but sometimes the Holy Spirit comes and there's not an apostle to be seen. Sometimes he comes with the laying on of hands and sometimes he comes way before anybody ever lays hands on them. Sometimes the Holy Spirit comes very close to the time of being baptised in water. Sometimes the Holy Spirit comes nowhere near the time of baptism. Sometimes the Holy Spirit comes before a person is baptised. Sometimes the Holy Spirit comes after a person is baptised. The point is, the giving of God's gift, the Holy Spirit, is not in our control. It's not in my control. It's not in your control. It's in God's control. And that's what it means for God to be sovereign, for God to be king, for God to be ruler, for God to have a mind of his own. It's God who decides when and where and how. God is sovereign and God chooses when to give his gift. And that's what the Holy Spirit is. It's a gift. And I'm I'm saying it. It's not an it. Holy Spirit is he. It's God himself. God decides when God moves in, in power. Jesus said in Luke chapter 11, he said, How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And that's all we can do. We ask. He, he said that after he told the parable about somebody who goes and knocks on a door because, look, I've got visitors who have come. I, I need some tucker for them. And he says, look, I tell you, even, even though, you, not because he wants to give you this stuff, if you keep pestering him, He'll, he will eventually get out of bed and give you this stuff. And he's saying, but God's not like that. All you've got to do is ask God and God will give. 
How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? If you want to be filled with God's Holy Spirit, ask him. Say, God, I'm weak without you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Lord, I'm empty without you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Lord, I can't do it in my own strength. I need you. Lord, I can't forgive like you forgive. I need your Spirit. Lord, I can't love like you love. I need your Spirit. And God answers that prayer. That's one thing you can be absolutely assured of. God will answer that prayer. But there's one person here who, well, it looks like he never did receive the Holy Spirit. His heart wasn't right. And that's the title I've given this message, A Matter of the Heart. Simon was a magician. Now, and he's a magician of great renown. And he's given an almost godlike status by those who are amazed by his magic. What is magic, by the way? And what does it mean to be a magician? How does a magician or a sorcerer do their tricks? Well, there's two ways. One way is very innocent and the other is vile, evil and dangerous. Most magicians who put their shows on for us today that you might go along and see um, or, or see on the telly are what we call illusionists. They are very clever very dexterous people uh, who perform their tricks with smoke and mirrors and sleight of hand or clever machinery and props and distractions, totally innocent and they do things right before our very eyes but they do it so quickly or, or in a way which is hidden and we miss it. And that's how they do their magic. Totally innocent, very entertaining. But the second type of magic isn't an illusion and it's far from being innocent. This type of magic or sorcery harnesses satanic powers of the occult to do things spiritually that are physically impossible. And when someone begins to dabble in or get caught up in the occult, well, Satan can get a real grip on them. And I'm pretty sure that that's what had happened to Simon the magician. I think he was very much into the occult and and Peter described it to him. You're full of gall and you're captive to... What did he say? We'll see it later. And for a long time he'd amazed the people and with his magic he'd been elevated to an almost godlike status. And he loved it. That was his life. And he loved it. And when Philip came to town and the works that God was doing through, through Philip well, Simon very quickly realised, hey, this is way better than what I can do. <laughs> this is something way better, way better. I've got to get me some of this. And we're told that when Philip preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Christ, the people believed and were baptised. And in verse 13 it says, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptised, all right, so he's baptised as well. He believed and was baptised. After being baptised, he continued with Philip Right, so continued following this Christian leader and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Right, so he used to amaze people and now he himself is being amazed by what God is doing through Philip. But when the apostles came to town and they laid their hands on the people and the Holy Spirit fell upon them, wow, what a neat trick that one is. 
Hey, I've got to get me some of that. It, you know, I've got to add that to my repertoire. And so he goes up to Peter and he says, I'll give you some money. I want to buy the ability to be able to do that. I'll, I'll give you some money and you show me how when I lay my hands on people, they can be filled with the Holy Spirit too. But basically, Peter said, you and your money can go to hell. That's basically what he said. You and your money can go to hell. You reckon you can buy the gift of God with money? What's what's the story with this fellow? I mean, Simon believed the gospel. We're told that. We're told that he believed what Philip was preaching. He believed that Jesus was the Christ. He believed that Jesus died and rose again. He was even baptised. I mean, aren't we taught that as long as I believe and as long as I'm baptised and I'm forgiven and born again? Aren't we taught that? I know, I hear that often. Well, Simon did believe. Simon was baptised. And yet the language that Peter is using is, He says, you're going to be destroyed. He says, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. He doesn't sound like an insider, does he? He's still on the outside. He believed, he was baptised and he was cursed and he was doomed. What was wrong? I'll tell you what was wrong. His heart was wrong. Peter said, your heart is not right before God. And there's a very important lesson right there for us. Simply believing that Jesus is the Christ and that he died and rose again to save us, well, that doesn't save us. Even Satan believes that. Satan knows that Jesus is the Christ. Satan knows that Jesus died. Satan knows that Jesus rose again. Satan knows that that was all God's plan of salvation. He knows all that, but he's not saved, is he? He's God's arch enemy. Being baptised and doing or, or doing other religious acts does not save us either. It's a matter of the heart. How's your heart with God? That's what it's about. And a lot of people in Australia today are living under a false illusion that they believe, okay, as long as I got done, as long as I was baptised, or as long as I baptised my kids, they're going to be right. Right? That puts them into God's family. It's all going to be good. Well, let me tell you, many people who have been baptised And many people who believe in the existence of God are going to walk right through the gates of hell on Judgment Day. Why? Because despite what they believe and despite what religious acts they've done, their hearts have never been right with God. And that's what it's about. Is our hearts getting right with God? Now, what does that mean? Well, what did it mean for Simon that his heart wasn't right for God? Well, for a start, I think he totally misunderstood the gospel. 
You see, when we understand that Jesus died to save us from our sins, the first thing we should do is fall on our knees in repentance. And the word repentance is one which has fallen from from the language of many people who proclaim to be Christians today. Repent, believe, be baptised. The fact that God died for us means that the gift of God is not something that money could ever buy. And yet here's Simon wanting to buy the power of of the Holy Spirit, he hadn't changed at all. He still had the same heart. His heart hadn't been touched. His heart hadn't been changed. When someone becomes a Christian, they're born again. They start anew. We are changed. We are not the same people we once were. Salvation is entirely a matter of the heart. It's a matter of what God does to your heart. And to my heart. When we encounter Christ, self falls away. I have no power in myself, and neither do you. I have no greatness in myself, and neither do you. I have no claim to rights or privileges or status or even the gifts of God. I have no claim to any of that in myself. Christ is the power. Christ has the greatness. Christ is the Lord. Christ is King. And if Christ is Lord and King, a humble heart falls before Christ and is subject to his power, subject to his throne and subject to his authority. And that never happened with Simon. But get this, the amazing thing with God is when our hearts are humbled, when our hearts are right before God, Christ takes us by the hand and he lifts us up. He lifts us up to our feet and and in his grace and mercy he gives us all the things we don't deserve. He gives us all of the things that we cannot buy. He gives us all of the power for his glory, not for ours. He gives us salvation. He gives us his Holy Spirit. He gives us freedom. He gives us purity. He gives us holiness. He gives us gifts. He gives us life. Not because we've bought it. Not because we've earned it. Not because we deserve it. Because God is gracious, because God is merciful. Isn't God good? We humble our hearts before God and he lifts us up. I don't think Simon had any relationship at all with Jesus. When Peter said to him, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. They're pretty harsh words. What would you say if the apostle said that to you? I know what I'd do. I'd be straight down on my face, be begging God for mercy. What did Simon do? 
Well, he didn't repent. And he didn't pray. He asked Peter to fix it for him. Well, you pray, Peter. Fix it. You, you, you fix this so that, so that doesn't happen to me. You see, Simon wanted freedom from punishment rather than the true freedom of a changed heart. That was what he was after. Just save me from this punishment. I don't want to be punished. You know, I sometimes wonder how many so-called conversions to Christ, whether they happen on a deathbed or whether they happen after a hellfire and brimstone message or whether it be any other kind of a message, I wonder how many are just seen as an insurance policy. They don't love God at all. Just save me from this punishment. I don't want to be judged. Yes, okay, I just don't want to, you know, I believe in God. I'll get baptised if that's what it takes. Um, just in case this God thing is real, I, I don't want to get punished. You'll probably be just as glad as I am that I'm not the one who judges hearts. Neither are you. And it's God who judges hearts. The Lord knows when our hearts are repentant before him. The Lord knows when our hearts are believing in Christ, not just, not just because we're afraid that we might get punished, but because we actually love him, because we actually desire this relationship with God and we desire a life of freedom, not just to be free from punishment. And my job as a preacher of Christ is to tell you it's not just what you believe. It's not just what religious acts you do. It's a matter of the heart. We must humble our hearts before Christ and throne him in our hearts, love him with all our hearts, trust him with your whole heart and experience his freedom. In your heart. It's a matter of a heart right before God. Now I know I can't make my heart right. God is the one who makes my heart right. But my heart has got to want Him to make it right. You understanding this? Seeing a few nods. Yeah. Questions. I've probably slayed a few sacred theological cows today. Um, So I better take some questions. Any questions? None. Let's pray. Now, Lord, I'm basically going to pray the same prayer that I prayed this morning before church began. Lord, in the light of this message about Simon the magician who just um, seems like he just wanted to be able to have your gifts and, and do things that, that only you can do, for his own glory and so that he could elevate himself. 
Lord, my prayer is that you would make our hearts right. And that everything that we do would be not to bring glory to ourselves, but to bring glory to you. Lord, we we're hopeless without you. We're powerless without you. We're doomed without you. Lord, make our hearts right so that we can love you more. Make our hearts right so that when we serve you, be not at all for our glory, not at all so that we look good, but it would be entirely for your glory and for your purposes. Well, that's an amazing thing that it's a huge expression of your grace in itself that you choose to use even us. We're a people who could not possibly earn the right to be your ministers, to be your servants. We could never possibly buy salvation. We could never possibly buy any of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We couldn't pay you, Lord, to move in and live in our hearts. That's entirely a matter of your grace. And Lord, that just amazes us that, that you would even choose to do that. For Lord, I know my life and I wonder why a holy God would want to live in my life. But Lord, I know in faith that it's because Jesus Christ has changed us that Jesus Christ changes us and makes us holy. So Lord, I just want to pray for each and every one of us here today. Lord, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would fill us with power. But Lord, keep our hearts right. Fill us with a love for you and a love for each other. In Jesus' name. Amen.